from the historic campus of Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, where the good, the true, and the beautiful are taught, nurtured, and honored, this is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, bringing the activity and education of the college to listeners across the country. I think if he was alive today, what he would find bizarre is having fought for decades and centuries to free periodicals and press from the grip of politics that you would have now journalists and people in the media voluntarily submitting to become instruments of a political party. This is your host, Scott Bertram, and that's Dr. Khalil Habib, our first guest on today's program. Dr. Habib is Associate Professor of Politics at Hillsdale College and recently wrote a piece published at a peer-reviewed journal on Tocqueville and free press and free speech. It's called Persecution and the Art of Freedom, Alexis de Tocqueville on the Importance of Free Press and Free Speech in Democratic Society. For, for, for Tocqueville, Dr. Habib, is freedom of the press simply an extension of free speech? It absolutely is. In fact, in Democracy in America, his two-volume massive tome on democracy, in America, only the freedom of the press gets two chapters devoted to its subject. And that's because Tocqueville sees anything in print and anything expressed orally as an extension of a fundamental and natural right that every human being has. He was struck in particular by the fact that America had such a freedom of the press because in Europe, there were licensing laws that would restrict what you had to say. You, in order to get a license, you had to satisfy the censors and say England. And so he comes to the United States around the time of Andrew Jackson's presidency, and he's just struck by the freedom that the American press has. And he thinks it's admirable in spite of some of his misgivings. Before we dig a bit deeper into Tocqueville's views, or at least what I sort of tie this to the state of media today, people who are critics of the media and free press these days will look and say they see bias, they see a media that is far too close to, say, political parties in some ways. Would Tocqueville recognize these critiques that some have of today's media as, 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 as valid even back then. Absolutely. Um, what, what's quite amusing about how he introduces his reflections on the freedom of the press in the United States is he first points out just how obnoxious it is. They slander, they lie, they're out to ruin you. And yet, he says, in spite of all of this, I support their complete freedom to speak and to write. I think what he would find strange in our times is at the time he's writing, there's very few places where you could see a freedom of the press, a, pl a press where you could set up shop without having to get a license from the state or from the country. Mm -hmm. Th that freedom that we have essentially means we don't. there's no barrier of entry into criticizing a president, holding politicians accountable. I think if he was alive today, what he would find bizarre is having fought for decades and centuries to free periodicals and press from the grip of politics that you would have now journalists and people in the media voluntarily submitting to become instruments of a political party. If you think about what a radical change that is, if you consider freedom of, the sp of press and freedom of speech, and speech me it means reason, logos, if you consider what it actually means and that you have people who are willing to become instruments of a political party, you're essentially 
in a situation where people are handing over a right to a party. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, Scott. I can't think of a single (laughs) right I would give up to any party. I don't care what your political persuasion is. So I think that he would find alarming and dangerous. You mentioned that there's no barrier in this country. There are actual proposals from our friends on the left to license journalists. There, there are U.S. senators who have said we should license journalists so we know who's a, who's a journalist. He'd find, Tokyo will find that outrageous, yes? Not only outrageous, it would fly in the face of the American founding. Such a proposal is contrary to the Constitution and our founding and should be, should be immediately challenged. Let me give you an example. In 1534, England passes the licensing laws. It makes freedom of speech basically impossible. When the American founders come around to the Constitution, freedom of speech and freedom to assemble, which are, of course, put together, because if you can't speak freely, what good is your right to assemble? You essentially don't have it. Mm-hmm. That is that is an amendment to the Constitution that essentially guarantees us the right to exercise our capacity as moral and civic agents. The idea that you would have to go and get permission to get licensed would go back. It would revert us back to 1534. <laughs> and if you were, if, if any American founder were to hear that this is being proposed by the very government they established to protect our rights, they would say this is a complete, uh, I don't even know what you call it. I mean, it, it's just, it flies in the face of the American founding. It's, it's uh, again, I'm not surprised, but it is alarming to hear that that's even being proposed. What's the relation between a free press and free association or, or Tocqueville's ideas and desire for the, this the civic association that he sees among Americans? That is a great question. If you notice how he goes about discussing freedom of the press, it's always in relation to the freedom to associate. Well, that's essentially the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And so what he's essentially doing is he's elaborating the power of the American Constitution and how it equips citizens to maintain their freedom. And one thing that I think people tend to forget is he did not intend this book for an American audience. Mm-hmm. He was helping his uh, his fellow citizens in France understand why the experiment in freedom in America seems to be working and why the French Revolution um, in, his, in his backyard was, was destined to fail. Now, the reason why he associates freedom of the press with the right to assemble, or he doesn't use that phrase, but to with, with associations, For Tocqueville, human beings have to lobby for their interests. They have to be vigilant. And in a country as large as ours, only associations, say, for example, the NRA, a a town association of some kind, only associations can double the impact an individual has in an age where you're going to be drifting towards an administrative state. So if you don't have an association of some kind representing your interest, you are going to fall behind. Although we have individual natural rights, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to defend those in an era where you have massive government. And Mm -hmm. so what Tocqueville is essentially saying is, Americans, Frenchmen, whoever is reading this book, you have to recognize the importance of people uniting as a group. Speech and the and the ability to, to even print a periodical that reflects your association's findings, say American Political Science Association. That's another thing I think Tocqueville would find terrifying. 
the American Political Science Association now is banning and canceling certain panels and schools of thought that don't agree with them. Tocqueville would think that is just the strangest thing. An association is there for members of that community to essentially communicate ideas to each other mm-hmm. and work in a united front against any restraints on their capacity to, to, for freedom of speech. And what do you have now? Associations turning in on themselves. Another bizarre twist in, uh, in contemporary American politics. Talking with Dr. Khalil Habib here at Hillsdale College about uh, Tocqueville and free, uh, free speech, free press. I think this is an extension of that last answer, but I want to ask more specifically about free, the free press. How does it safeguard liberty here in the United States? Well, Tocqueville talks about liberty in two different ways. There's political liberty and then there's individual liberty. Political liberty, he always associates with a decentralized form of government. If you have a centralized form of government, you do not have political liberty. Well, what then is political liberty? Political liberty is the capacity for citizens to join in an association and to essentially advocate for themselves. Um, And uh, for Tocqueville, the role that the press and the freedom of the speech plays in that is that there are two things that can centralize. And for Tocqueville, anything that centralizes has way too much power, and before you know it, you've got a tyranny of some kind. We're all familiar with the centralization of government and the, power and the problems that that poses. Tocqueville was the first to give a psychology and an analysis of what happens if public opinion hmm. was to centralize, and that you wouldn't have a diversity of views, intellectual diversity. Right. But what would happen if you had the centralization of public opinion? If public opinion goes after an unpopular opinion, it can crush your capacity to articulate your mind. And for Tocqueville, the freedom of speech, and again, as I'm sure you know in Greek, it's logos, and logos means reason, and it's associated with speech. The public opinion, if it were to centralize and suddenly dictate what's politically correct and what's politically incorrect, which is which is a way of saying what is what you ought to be thinking and how you should be expressing yourself, that is an affront to what makes a human being distinct from anything else in the world, and it's a it's a violation of a natural right. So why so what does this have to do with the press for Tocqueville? Tocqueville was hoping that if you defragmented public opinion you could prevent a national public opinion that could essentially tyrannize over the country. And so the way to do that is to encourage the proliferation of associations, student papers, local papers. I think he would be very concerned about national press having this much power because Mm -hmm. what you essentially have is a centralization of public opinion. And we know from recent elections that when public opinion, which is essentially governed by a handful of people, they can shape public opinion. This is what made Facebook so terrifying yeah. and other media. You're essentially changing the rules of engagement that our, that, that our founders had in mind, and that is representative government that would express our liberties and then be held accountable. That's terrifying. So for Tocqueville, What you want is you want the press to recognize the vital role they play in holding government accountable. And the only way they can do that is if they stop groveling at the feet of political parties and handing over a God-given right to them. Uh, To defragment public opinion would require the proliferation of many radio stations, many papers. You don't want opinion to ever centralize. 
Final question for Dr. Khalil Labib on Tocqueville and free press and free speech. A lot of discussion about how free press interacts with government, and you allude to this in that last answer, how private companies interact with the free press. When we see attempts by Facebook or other entities to say, you can't publish here, or we're going to suppress this story and not let it be shared, or uh, this story we don't think is true, so we're going to stop people from talking about this story— what would Tocqueville say about not government, but private enterprise interfering in free press like that? That is a really good and very tricky question to answer because every membership, every association has a right to define the terms of membership. Um, you have a club, you have requirements, you have guidelines, and you have every right to do that. Every right to do that. What I think Tocqueville would 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 be alarmed by is, and I don't think anyone at the time could have imagined how just a handful of people or a company could end up having that much power. At the time, the biggest concern was government having right. that kind of power. Right. And so we were all focused in on that. And then all of a sudden, I think if Tocqueville were alive today, he'd say, you know what, you have a new oligarchy. Now, the oligarchy of the past oppressed with money and it would collude with government. And I'm not so sure that that's so different today. These are companies that their total monopolistic powers rest on keeping government out of their hair. The way they do that, they assist the powers that be that are in power, just like oligarchies always do. And that's a danger. And I think that the only way, and that you could say, as Tocqueville would say, well, then go create your own paper. We've mm -hmm, heard that before. Mm -hmm. We'll go create your own online right. source. But we now are recognizing just how impossible that is. Amazon, for example, controls many, many servers. You can say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to create my own e-reader. Well, yeah, good luck with that. It's not going to happen. Just the economy of scale is against you. So I think Tocqueville would say this is exactly why the freedom of the press is now 10 times more important than it ever has been because you now have oligarchies that don't just simply control an, as a certain sector. They're controlling public opinion, which shapes politics. That's massive. And that is a very terrifying thing. Dr. Khalil Habib, Associate Professor of Politics here at Hillsdale College. His work is at Social Philosophy and Policy. You can find the uh, journal, find it in the journal, Persecution and the Art of Freedom, Alexis de Tocqueville on the Importance of Free Press and Free Speech in Democratic Society. Dr. Habib, thanks for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Scott, it was an honor. Thank you. Up next, we talk with Alan Gelzo, his recent book, Robert E. Lee, A Life. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. Honor is very important. Also, the classics are clear. It's not the highest order good because it depends so much on the quality of the person who gives it. You know, the delight of a friend. I assert to everybody watching this, but they can tell for themselves, these are two very high-quality individuals. They live their life in a serious way. And so if they think something of one, one is pleased. If you take a being that knows more than they know and is quicker than they are, and it says what you've taught it to say, it's very corrupting of one if he thinks that's honor. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now. Only available on The Larry Arn Show.
Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio and subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. We welcome your thoughts and ideas, questions, and comments. Email us at radiohour at hillsdale.edu. We're joined now by Alan Gelzo. He is Senior Research Scholar at the Council of Humanities at Princeton University and Director of the James Madison Program's Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship, author of multiple books about the Civil War and American history. And the new one is Robert E. Lee, A Life. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Well, very good to be with you, Scott, and very good to be able to talk to the larger Hillsdale audience, uh, an audience that uh, I've spoken to many times and a place that uh, I, I think very highly of. Yes, we look forward to your next visits to campus. It's always nice to see your face around here. Uh, Robert E. Lee, the interests in Lee and his life, I, I think I've seen you mentioned before, is he perhaps the one figure from this Civil War era to match or near Abraham Lincoln in his significance? Is that the reason we're so interested in him? Well, I think that's true, although the true part of it really has two aspects. One is that when you look at the great figures of the Civil War, really, if you're going to choose one from one side and one from the other, one from column A and one from column B, so to speak, uh, Lincoln certainly comes from column A. And from column B, the Confederacy, so to speak, uh, you really only have Robert E. Lee. Uh, strictly speaking, the opposite number to Abraham Lincoln would have been Jefferson Davis, mm-hmm. president of the Confederacy. But Davis's reputation, even in his own time, never even came close to matching the exalted condition that Robert E. Lee found himself in. So really, if you're going to pick one from each side as representatives for the Civil War era, you really do have to go with Lincoln and with Lee. This is not to say that there are not others who were important, and certainly I would rush at once to insist on the importance of Ulysses Grant Mm -hmm. and William Tecumseh Sherman, and probably a few others as well. But if we've got to pick two, then really it does come down to Lincoln and Lee. This is a thorough look at the life of Robert E. Lee. In in previous attempts, not by you, but in previous attempts to to, to sort of study him, do you think that by and large we have missed the complexity of his life by by trying to define him in, in relatively simple terms? Has that been a problem? Well, the word simple itself has something of a history in Lee biography, because what you might call the Mount Everest of Lee biographies, that is Douglas Southall Freeman's four-volume R.E. Lee from the 1930s, used exactly that word to describe Lee. His insistence was that Lee's character really had no complications and no complexities. Lee was a fundamentally a very simple person. He was simple, he was direct, he was a creature of duty, and he was upright, and there was really little in the way of what you could call flaw in the man. And I think that the purpose of that was to fit Lee into a narrative that emerged after the Civil War. 
as Southerners tried to make sense of what had happened to them in this catastrophic defeat. And what emerges from that is what's sometimes called the lost cause. Alan, what's the lost cause? What do you mean by that? Having lost the Civil War, Southerners invented a number of, shall we say, creative ways of explaining why that happened, Mm -hmm. almost all of which were intended to shift any kind of moral blame or moral incubus from them. They would insist, for instance, that the war had not been caused by slavery at all. That wasn't really the issue. The South really didn't like love slavery all that much. Uh, what really triggers the Civil War is the questions between federal and state authority and states' rights. Another aspect of the lost cause is that the South loses the war, not because there was anything flawed in the Confederacy itself, but simply because the North had more manpower, it had greater resources, it could grind down the South in a war of attrition. And the implication of the lost cause, therefore, is that, well, the North won, but it really wasn't quite fair. They, they, had, uh, they, had, they had 12 players on the field compl- comp- <laughs> playing against the South, nine players on the team. And that becomes the second major thing. And the third major thing which the Lost Cause promotes is this idea that even though Southerners lost, they conducted the war with such nobility and such uh, restraint that one has to put the Southern armies and the conduct of the war on on the part of the Confederacy really on an even moral plane with the conduct of the war by Lincoln and the Union armies. There are deep, deep flaws each one of those contentions. And I won't, I won't launch into a long disquisition on the problems with each of them, but suffice it to say that each one of them really fails the smell test. Hmm. But you can see where Lee became important to this because Lee becomes critical primarily to the argument that the South conducts the war on this noble basis, which gives it a kind of equal moral status with the with the union cause and especially union emancipation uh, to a certain extent what's also bound into it is lee is somehow a proof that southerners were really not all that enthused about slavery because in truth robert e lee was not all that enthused about slavery as an issue well that was lee that doesn't mean that the rest of the confederacy wasn't <laughs> and if you read the confederacy's ordinances of secession in 1861, they were, in fact, quite determined in seeing what they were doing as a defense of their peculiar institution, as they like to call it. But you see, on those terms, how Lee gradually becomes a part of this lost cause argument. And by the time that Southall Freeman is writing in the 1930s, and the lost cause is really at its highest pitch of development, This is why Southall Freeman will want to portray Lee in the way that he does, the simple man of duty and obligation, the the southern equivalent of King Arthur, who has uh, no flaws and who is beyond reproach. And that is, as I've tried to lay out in Robert E. Lee, A Life, is a gross, almost demeaning simplification of the complications that make Robert E. Lee who he is. Alan Gelzer with us, the book Robert E. Lee, A Life, Making Robert E. Lee Who He Is. Are there two or three uh, specific factors or specific uh, angles 
to his personality we should consider when we consider Robert E. Lee? I spent a long time with Lee's letters, Lee's private papers, and over the course of some 40 years of Lee's life, the earliest of his letters that survives, curiously enough, is his application letter for West Point. Hmm. But his letter writing continues right up until the day he died. He was a voluminous letter writer. Uh, he didn't, it's, it's, it's odd, he didn't like office paperwork. He, what runs constantly through his professional career in the United States Army, and even as General Lee of the Confederate Army, and then after the war, as president of Washington College, he loathed office paperwork. <laughs> and yet, he had no hesitation at writing reams of personal letters, sometimes three and four in a day. So there's something like between six and 8,000 of Lee's letters to, uh, to, to take into account and the taking into account itself is a problem because unlike a number of other prominent figures of the period, like Lincoln or Grant, there's no central edition of Lee's letters. There's, no, there's not even a central collection of Lee's letters. Hmm. But what emerges from them when you spend a long time with them are basically three things. And you do have to spend time with him to see these things develop. Talking with Alan Gelzo about his book, Robert E. Lee. Alan, those three characteristics, those three personality characteristics, let's spend some time with them. What, what's the first? One is, here is a man in Robert E. Lee who is a perfectionist. He is one of those types who insists that his behavior has to be perfect to the letter, and the behavior of everyone around him has to be perfect to the letter. He's an absolutist that way. And sometimes that makes him very, very difficult to live with. His staff, for instance, during the Civil War, found serving Robert E. Lee both attractive and difficult. Attractive because Robert E. Lee was such a success in command of the Southern armies, but very difficult because he was so demanding. Hmm. And his, his adjutant, Walter Taylor, writing in a letter to his fiancée, complained that Robert E. Lee, General Lee, is so unappreciative. You know, I do things for him, I do this for him, I do that for him, I never get any thanks for it. He's so difficult to work for. Why? Because he was a perfectionist. He expected that from people. That perfectionism, I think, grows out of an early experience in his life, and that is the loss of his father. Mm -hmm. His father was the famous Revolutionary War hero, Light Horse Harry Lee. And Light Horse Harry was, was, a, was a great character when it came to the Revolution, and well-beloved of George Washington. But like many other people who are great successes at war, he was a total failure at peace, <laughs> politically and economically. And when Robert is really just six years old, um, Light Horse Harry Lee flees his creditors, flees his political enemies, takes off for the West Indies, and Robert never sees him again. It has been said that the loss of a parent like that before the onset of adolescence is one of the cruelest wounds that the human heart can sustain. And I think that's borne out in spades in Robert E. Lee. Hmm. In fact, one of the most curious things that I found in working through the vast mass of Lee's papers is that Robert E. Lee never, for 40 years, writes about his father. Now, this is at a time when everybody who writes about Robert E. Lee 
or who introduces Robert A. Lee is always writing about him or introducing him as the son of the famous Light Horse Harry. Mm -hmm. But Robert never talks about his father. And that's like the dog that didn't bark in the Sherlock Holmes story. So that, I think, generates in Lee this determination to be perfect. And I think a lot of that determination grows from the sense that he must hold himself accountable for what his father did, and that he must be not Light Horse Harry. And I think that that perfectionism shows up in Lee's life over and over and over again. Alan, we'll pause there and come back and talk more about the personality traits of Robert E. Lee. Alan Gelza with us, his new book, Robert E. Lee, A Life. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. back on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. We've been talking with Alan Gelzo, author of the recent book, Robert E. Lee, A Life. Alan, we ended the last segment by talking about one of Robert E. Lee's key personality traits. What's the second? The second thing that I think that urges from inspecting Lee's character is his, is his desire for independence. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to be beholden. He didn't want to be beholden to the memory of his father. He didn't want to be beholden to anybody else. He wanted to stand on his own two feet. Well, independence is a great thing to desire. The problem is it can also be very difficult to pay for, which leads me to the third thing that I think is important in Lee, and that is he also had this almost contradictory urge for security. So you see this in his family life. For the sake of security, he will marry into one of the first families of Virginia, the Custises. And yet he will resist at every point the efforts of the Custis family to get him to resign from the army and come and live permanently at Arlington and basically become the Custis family major domo. He wants security, but he wants independence too. And those contradictory drives in him are what constantly oscillate back and forth in Lee's life. And I I think it's safe to say that he never really resolves those Mm. until after the war, in the last five years of his life, when he's the president of Washington College. Because in that role, finally, he gets to have free reign to exercise perfection. He gets independence, because none of the trustees of the college are going to second-guess General Lee. (laughs) And he gets security, because there he is, king of the hill, or (laughs) literally speaking, king of the upper end of the Shenandoah Valley. And finally, at that point, I think he has what really could be said to be the five happiest years of his life, so much so that at one point he tells a student at Washington College, and this is really astonishing, it was astonishing for this student to hear it, Lee says to this student, the greatest mistake of my life was to take a military education. Hmm. And when you reflect that this is Robert E. Lee who's saying this, that is a simply astonishing statement. But I think it is also indicative of the fact that it was in those last five years when he says that, that he has really found some kind of resolution for these tensions in his life, and maybe the ultimate proof of the pudding that way, 
is that it's in those last five years that he finally does turn his attention to the memory of Light Horse Harry and writes the only extended essay he ever writes in his life. And that is a biographical introduction to a reprint of Light Horse Harry's History of the Southern Campaigns of the Revolution. Hmm. I think he finally, Robert E. Lee finally achieves in those last years the closure that had eluded him all the years uh, previously in his life. Talking with Alan Gelzo, his new book is Robert E. Lee, A Life. You, you mentioned those those tensions, duty to family and his, 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 his demands uh, in the Army. How does he resolve those tensions, attempt to resolve those, those tensions? And I guess perhaps this leads us to a different question I wanted to ask. I'll, I'll throw in here, which is, why for Robert E. Lee was the pull to Virginia more powerful than his loyalty to the U.S. Army? Well, I'm not sure that his loyalty to Virginia was the pull. After all, Robert E. Lee, even though he's born on the northern neck of Virginia in 1807, grows up in Alexandria. Hmm. Now, we think of Alexandria as part of Virginia. Sure. But when he was growing up there, it wasn't. Alexandria was part of the District of Columbia. In fact, uh, that part of the District of Columbia is not retroceded to Virginia until the 1830s, long after Robert Lee has departed it. So Robert Lee grows up in the District of Columbia. He goes to college at West Point, which is the last time I checked, still in New York. And from there, he is commissioned into the Army. His first assignment is in Georgia. He then has an assignment at Fortress Monroe, in Virginia, but from there he is sent west to St. Louis, where he spends a number of years reconstructing the St. Louis waterfront. From there, he is assigned to Fort Hamilton on the Narrows of uh, New York City. Then comes the Mexican War, and he serves in Mexico under General Winfield Scott. When he comes back from the Mexican War, his first assignment is to Maryland. It's to Baltimore for the construction of Fort Carroll. From there, he's reassigned as superintendent of West Point, so he's back to New York. And from West Point, he goes to become lieutenant colonel of the 2nd Cavalry in Texas. So in all of those years of his professional career in the United States Army, he's actually more often in other places, in fact, more often in the north than he is physically in Virginia. So what is he talking about when he says that he he can't draw his sword against his native state. What I think Virginia really means for him is not the physical domain of the old dominion. I think Virginia, for him, means family. Because what I think he is trying to do is to protect Arlington. And in so doing, what he's trying to do is to calculate what is most likely to save Arlington right in that specific moment in April of 1861, when everything was was really up for grabs. We think, looking back, that April 1861 was very cut and dried. Confederacy has seceded from the Union, Confederate forces fire on Fort Sumter, thus begins the Civil War. For at least a month, maybe six weeks, maybe two months after that, it was still, it was still very uncertain how this was all going to play out, whether there was actually going to be Civil War, or whether there was going to be some reorganization of the Union into, as some people speculated, three or four different confederacies. And Lee is trying to understand the currents of this situation and to 
and to ride these currents, largely with a view towards trying to protect Arlington as the patrimony for his family. In other words, he's going to do, even if he has to sacrifice himself, he's going to do what Light Horse Harry Hmm. did not do. And there is so much complexity that is wrapped up in that decision. It's not nearly as simple as Lee himself would afterwards want to make it sound. It's not nearly as simple as Southall Freeman and other promoters of the lost cause would like to make it sound. And it's really a decision that emerges out of an atmosphere of uncertainty. But it's also a decision which is, I think, intimately connected with those long-term concerns about family, about perfection, about independence, about security. Alan, what of his military prowess and how we have viewed it through the years, his strengths, his weaknesses, is he perhaps a bit overrated when it comes to his military prowess? Well, that's one of those questions I think you have to give a yes and no answer. Um, The yes answer comes from the fact that Robert E. Lee won a remarkable string of victories, victories that occurred almost routinely when he is outnumbered, outgunned, outsupplied, and yet manages to defeat far better equipped and far more numerous Union armies that are sent against him. Places, for instance, like Fredericksburg, like Chancellorsville, these are, these are simply remarkable moments and remarkable victories by anybody's stretch of the imagination. Yet, at the same time, who is he winning them against? The, general, the Union generals who were sent up against him are, are a pretty sorry bunch. <laughs> Ambrose Burnside, Joseph Hooker, I mean, these, these are not what you would call today uh, the first string players. And you can say that Lee's prowess as general, therefore, is probably overrated because he was really he was he was really playing against the junior varsity team. But on the other hand, look at him in a larger context from the time he first takes charge of the Army of Northern Virginia uh, on the peninsula in 1862. If Robert E. Lee had not stepped into that role then I think it's very likely that the Union Army under General George McClellan would probably have captured Richmond. And given the Union victories which are taking place in the Western Theater at the same time, Fort Henry, Fort Donelson, the, the, the collapse of much of Tennessee into Union hands, and then the battle at Shiloh, and then at Corinth, he put those together with the possible fall of Richmond. And that would pretty much have spelled the end of the Confederacy. I think the Civil War would probably have been over before the end of 1862. Hmm. It's Lee who steps in at that point and performs what everyone regards as a as nearly a military miracle, drives McClellan and his enormously superior army back from Richmond, bounds northwards, defeats another Union army at Second Bull Run, invades Maryland, eludes destruction by McClellan's army, wins the battles at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. I mean, you look at that, and that is just simply a remarkable succession of military victories. And that, just on its own terms, meant that Robert E. Lee, almost single-handedly, is the one who saves the Confederacy from collapse in 1862. And in some respects, I think it could be said that Robert E. Lee is the operative person who 
prolongs the war through 1862, 63, 64, into 1865. Without Lee, it simply wouldn't have gone like that. The irony, though, the irony of that is, if the Confederacy had collapsed in 1862 without Lee as, as its primary figure, figurehead, then the ending of the war that would have taken place then would not have included emancipation. Mm-hmm. The, the peculiar thing about Lee's successes is that by prolonging the war, he makes emancipation, shall we say, necessary. Hmm. He makes it possible so that by prolonging the war, as he does all the way until 1865, Robert E. Lee is actually guaranteeing the destruction of everything that the Confederacy was brought into being to protect. And that may be the ultimate irony of Robert E. Lee's career. A great military career, just considered on military terms, but ironic in its political, social, and cultural result. Alan Gill, so I know we're running a little long here, but I simply must ask the question, the question everyone asks, I assume, when they talk about Robert E. Lee with you, these accusations and questions about traitor, treason. Do you convict him of these charges? (laughs) Well, I'm not a judge, I'm not a jury, I'm not even a lawyer. (laughs) And yet, I have to say, and I do say in the book, pretty forthrightly, that I believe that Robert E. Lee did, yes, commit treason. I don't use the term lightly. I'm not throwing it around just as something nasty to say about someone that a lot of people are saying nasty things about. I'm looking at the Constitution's definition of treason. And while that definition is very narrow, and and deliberately so on the part of the Constitutional Convention, nevertheless... It has two parts. One is making war against the United States, and the other is giving aid and comfort to its enemies. And on both counts, I cannot look at what Robert E. Lee does and not call it for what it is, which is treason. He did commit treason. He was indicted for treason. Now, he was never brought to trial for it after the war, but that was because there were a number of legal complications, not because people did not simply look at that definition and say, well, yes, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were a number of complications that enter into it that we could almost call extra-legal complications. And yet at the end, how have Americans handled the issue of treason? The Constitutional Convention was not, I think, making a mistake when it struggled to define treason in almost the narrowest terms that it could. After all, the people who wrote the Constitution had themselves had their necks in a noose ten years before during the Revolution. So they were very sensitive about how you define treason. What they did was to make it very difficult to use Mm -hmm. that description of treason in the Constitution as a basis for condemning anyone. So that even certified clowns like Aaron Burr can escape the rap. See that you see the tightness of the definition? You see how hard it can be then to use that as a way of, of convicting people? Well, I think that's deliberate on the part of the founders. I think it's deliberate because in the long run, American society has been a very forgiving society. Mm-hmm. And we have preferred to absorb our defaulters rather than to have a constant procession of executions and hanging. 
committed treason. Yet at the same time, I'm also willing, as I say at the very end of the book, that perhaps the best conclusion for us to come to is a nolle prosequi. I'm using a legal term here. Do not prosecute. Hmm. Which is, in fact, the same term that the Attorney General in the 1860s used in dealing with Lee's indictment. Finally, they concluded nolle prosequi in the 1860s. I think that I think that obeys a certain instinctive wisdom in the American system in how we deal, even with someone who has endangered the nation by the commission of treason. I think that says something positive. I think that says something compassionate about the nature of Americans themselves. It is always a great pleasure to talk with Alan Gelzo. His brand new book is Robert E. Lee. A life. He's also senior research scholar at the Council of Humanities at Princeton University, director of the James Madison Program's Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship. You can also find his previous works as well. Alan, thank you so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thank you very much indeed. Up next, we talk with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, on this, the 57th anniversary week of the death of Winston Churchill. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. Honor is very important. Also, the classics are clear. It's not the highest order good. Because it depends so much on the quality of the person who gives it. You know, the delight of a friend. I assert to everybody watching this, but they can tell for themselves, these are two very high-quality individuals. They live their life in a serious way. And so if they think something of one, one is pleased. If you take a being that knows more than they know and is quicker than they are, and it says what you've taught it to say, It's very corrupting of one if he thinks that's honor. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. And subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. This week marked the 57th anniversary of the death of Winston Churchill. Here at Hillsdale College, we have something called the Churchill Project. You can find out more at winstonchurchill.hillsdale.edu. And the man to talk about Winston Churchill with is, of course, Hillsdale's president, Dr. Larry Arn. Dr. Arn, thanks for joining us. Why Churchill? Why Hillsdale? What's, what sense does that connection make? Uh, well, there are two reasons why Hillsdale. Uh, one is Winston Churchill was an exa- excellent example of a very important kind of thing, a thing that you need to understand to understand human beings. And the second is Winston Churchill happened in the past, and that means it's the subject of history. And if you're going to study a time period, you're stuck with the past. Because the future is, as Churchill would say, though imminent is obscure and the present is fleeting. 
What is it about Churchill that allows for this intense level of study of his of his life and activities? Uh, well, Churchill uh, is a very unusual man. Churchill is a very Churchill was a statesman, and we learn in Aristotle's Ethics that uh, if you want to understand what practical wisdom is, that's knowledge of how to make choices. Uh, the best examples to study are statesmen. Churchill was one of those. All of us make choices. Statesmen make a lot and make hard ones, and so you can learn from them. Uh, Churchill was a very unusual man. Churchill wrote 50 books. Churchill uh, writes in the preface to the last document by him, uh, uh, Churchill writes a letter to his successor, Clement Attlee, successor and political enemy, although personal friend, that uh, he always believed in writing everything down. And it makes clarity, and it makes expedition in business. But then he said, it's actually very valuable to understand what we went through, better, more valuable than any other single thing could be. So there's just a massive documentary evidence about Winston Churchill because he was a keeper of stuff, and he wrote everything down. And uh, then he was in all these big, huge, traumatic, important events. Mm -hmm. And so to understand them, uh, he's a great place to do it. You have been researching, you have been teaching, you have been thinking about Winston Churchill for an awfully long time. How did you begin working with Sir Martin Gilbert, who was the official biographer, was the official biographer of Winston Churchill? Did you already have this, this passion, this interest in Churchill before that relationship began? Uh, well, I, I got interested in Winston Churchill in 1974 when I went to graduate school, and I had two teachers who mentioned him, uh, Harry Jaffa and Harold Rood. And then in a wonderful piece of good fortune, I was bitten by a dog and laid up in the summer, and the man I was house-sitting for had written his doctoral thesis on Winston Churchill. Those were the books that he had. <laughs> so I was in bed for about 10 days, and uh, while I was in bed, I read Churchill, and I never stopped. Uh, I got a scholarship, a fellowship from the Rotary Foundation to go to England and study and I had an introduction to Martin Gilbert from Professor Jaffa. They knew each other. They actually never, they never, well, they, yeah, they met once in person, but they hadn't by that time. And so Martin Gilbert had to see me because somebody he knows in America asked him to. And uh, that conversation took very unexpected turns because uh, it, was, it was mostly, I, I had two really great qualities that appealed to him. One was, I was too ignorant to ask him for anything. And the other was, I was a willing worker. So he offered me help, and I turned him down. An amazing thing. <laughs> I, I now know that that was just really stupid. I said, no, I don't really need anything from you. I said, but I'll be here in London, and if I can help you, I'll have some time, and I like to do research. I can look stuff up. And he sat back in his chair. He was obviously surprised. And he may have thought it more artful than it was. And uh, he said, would you like a job? And I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, when could you start? And I said, Monday. It was Friday. I had to chase him down the stairs and find out where to go, <laughs> Oxford. I, was li I just moved into a dormitory in London. And he said, I said, where do I go? And he told me. And I said, Oxford. Should I live in Oxford? 
And he said that would be better. So I moved over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Larry Arn with us, the 12th president of Hillsdale College, talking about the Churchill Project. You can find out more about it at winstonchurchill.hillsdale.edu. Uh, at that website, the official biography volumes are linked. People can see them, buy them if they wish. Tell us a bit about this official biography, which I believe is eight volumes, and then there are additional document volumes that are released. How did it come to be? How did how did how did it uh, be? How was it researched and, and put together? Uh, Churchill set it up. Churchill was a historian, and uh, he had a son whom he admired, who was a writer, and uh, so he set it up that his papers, uh, which were purchased from him by friends, so he could have money. <laughs> Uh, he, he sort of got, you know, pretty wealthy at the end of his life, but he was broke his whole life. Hmm. And uh, he set it up so that they could be used in the writing of the official biography, and then after that by anybody who wants to use them. And he set it up so that his son would be the biographer. And uh, this, the, the biography commenced in 1962, and his son, Randolph Churchill, hired a research assistant named Martin Gilbert, a young man. And Randolph Churchill died in 1968, and Martin Gilbert succeeded him, and Martin Gilbert died in, uh, well, he became incapacitated in 2012. And, uh, and so I had been involved with him in many ways from the time I met him in 1977. And I ended up, I, the, the part that's not finished, that is now, as I sit here right now, it's, I've, all the work is done, it's just being typeset now. So there are eight narrative volumes. They're very large. And there are 23 volumes of documents. Each one of them is about 2,500 pages hmm. long. Each one of them has about 4,000 footnotes in it. And of the 23, if memory serves, we have done since Martin Gilbert passed, I think it's the last seven of them. And, uh, and that means that the documentary history of Churchill and the narrative history of Churchill are complete and extremely thorough, and and the and the documents are published, and that means if you want to study Churchill and you have access to a library or you don't mind buying thirty-one books, you can know everything, <laughs> and the everything is indexed and annotated, and you can get it on ebook now. So uh, there's a, it's a massive. It's the longest biography ever written. It's crazy, and it's great. <laughs> Sir Martin Gilbert uh, became a fellow here at Hillsdale College. What impact did he make on the college? Well, he, Martin Gilbert is a great man. He was a, he was a very great man. He's arguably the best, finest historian in the 20th century, certainly one of them. And so anytime young people can be around people who set standards like that, then... They, 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 it's like, uh, it's like in music using a pitch pipe. They can hear mm -hmm. what it's supposed to sound like and see it in action. We have very great teachers here, many. And we have a couple who have publishing careers that are huge, although Martin Gilbert says beyond anybody, he published 88 large books of history. And the point is, the young people... They, they, they don't just learn what the teachers know. They learn how to be. Hmm. And they watch for that, and they imitate them. And it's a, 
it's you know it's how it's how I was raised you know and I I have these teachers and they help me a lot and I'm grateful for them to this day and Martin Gilbert is one of them what is your goal what is the college's goal with the Churchill project from this point forward what work in your mind remains to be done through the Churchill project well the college is uh, is uh, the college is actually very simple to understand it has a mission which is save the world it has a method which is teaching so one of the fundamental things to learn is the political nature of the human being which is written in our essential capacities and what it, what excellence is in managing the political community leading it especially in the democratic way and so nobody's better than churchill because churchill is a person of our time uh, Churchill comes along after the invention of scientific warfare, the, the creation of world wars, after the creation of the modern administrative state, mm -hmm. which is comprehensive kind of government that seeks to manage just about everything. And Churchill knew that directly and resisted it. And so there's lessons to be learned there. Dr. Larry Arn, the 12th president of Hillsdale College, on the Churchill Project. We'll learn more about this in the weeks to come, and you can find out more at winstonchurchill.hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, thanks for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thank you, Scott. That will wrap up this edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Our thanks to Dr. Khalil Habib talking about Tocqueville and free press and free speech, Alan Gelzo and his book Robert E. Lee, A Life, and Dr. Larry Arn on the Churchill Project here at Hillsdale. The Radio Free Hillsdale Hour is recorded at the studios of WRFH, the student-run radio station at Hillsdale College. You can hear new episodes every week on this station. You also can hear extended versions of some of our interviews, including Alan Gelzo this week, or listen anytime to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour podcast. Find it at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and now iHeart. You can follow the show on Twitter at Hillsdale Radio or find us on Facebook. The assistant producer of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour is Nate Esbenshade. To find out more about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu. Until next week, I'm Scott Bertram, and this has been the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour.